0: Please, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 92. This will be our scripture reading, Psalm 92, verses 5 to 9. And then our sermon passage is taken from the book of Job, and particularly Job chapter 21. So, our scripture reading, Psalm 92, verses 5 to 9. And then uh, just a, just a little bit in front of that in your Bibles, you'll find Job 21. Brothers and sisters, I remind you that this is the word of God you're about to hear. This is the Lord speaking to you. So I entreat you, I call upon you to give your full attention to God's word as it is being read. Psalm 92, 5-9. to How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Now turning to Job chapter 21. Then Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words, and let this be your comfort. Bear with me, and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled, and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed, and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live? reach old age and grow mighty in power. Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Shaol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is, wicked is put out? That their calamity comes upon them? That God distributes pain in His anger? That they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. You say, God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let Him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their mouths is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that He judges those who are on high, or dies in His full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, His pails full of milk and the marrow of His bones moist? Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts." And your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do, not, do you not accept their testimony? That the evil man is spared in the, days, uh, in the day of calamity. That he is rescued in the day of wrath. Who declares his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watches kept over his tomb." The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. How then would you comfort me with empty nothings? There's nothing left of your answers but falsehood. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as we saw... Several years ago, when we worked our way through the book of Job in its entirety, we saw, dear Lord, how difficult this book is, how hard it is for us to read, how hard it is to hear the things that are said. And honestly, oh Lord, how often we find ourselves in agreement with those who are opposed to Job and trying to teach him a theology that is counter to what your word teaches us about you and your dealings with man. We pray that your spirit would lead us today as your word is now to be preached. We pray that the preaching of your word would be honoring to your holy name. That your spirit would guide the one who preaches. And that your spirit would give ears to the ones who hear. We pray that you would help us to understand what you are saying in your word this morning. We pray this all. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. Now you'll remember, it's been a few years, I think it was 2017 when we went all the way through the book of Job, so it's been a few years, but you'll remember, and some of you perhaps have read through the book of Job recently, you remember that there's this pattern in the first half of the book of Job, once the three friends show up, these three comforters, they show up after Job has had this tremendous, terrible calamity that has fallen upon him, he's lost, he's lost everything. He's lost all of, uh, of the material possessions that he had. And these friends apparently travel from great distance, and they come, they, they come trying to help their friend. They've, they've heard news, this terrible report of what has happened to their friend. And they come in the name of, of helping him out, in, in the desire to comfort him. And over the course of this, the, the three friends and Job, they, they go back and forth, they take turns talking, they give speeches, and Job responds. And so our passage this morning is a response that Job is giving to his friend Zophar, the Naamathite. Now, prior to Naamathite, uh, sorry, Zophar, the Naamathite, speaking to Job, uh, the friend Bildad in Uh, Chapter 18 speaks to Job. And so Bildad speaks to Job. Job answers in chapter 19. Now Zophar speaks to Job in chapter 20. And in chapter 21, Job is responding back to Zophar. Zophar's speech in chapter 20, just give a brief summary of that. And Job's here. They offer a point and a counterpoint to one another. Job's speech in chapter 21 directly and assertively contradicts Zophar's main point. And Zophar's argument is summed up by what he says in chapter 20, verse 5. The exulting of the wicked is short, and uh, and the joy of the godless is but for a moment. Zophar's implicit argument throughout chapter 20 was that Job is living proof that the wicked suffer because Job is suffering. It's a very circular argument, isn't it? Job is suffering, therefore Job must be wicked, because only the wicked suffer in this life. And so Job is countering in chapter 21 in the passage that I just read to you, and he says, contrary to Zophar's assertion, that the wicked prosper all the time. Now what is implicit in our passage? It's not explicitly stated. But what is implicit in our passage is that if the wicked prosper, if the wicked don't actually suffer in the way that Zophar and Bildad, the way that they have asserted, then what that can also mean is that the righteous can suffer in this life. That just because a person is suffering does not mean that he's wicked. And so Job's point in chapter 21 is that if wicked people don't get what they do deserve in this life, but instead prosper, then it is at least possible that righteous people do suffer even if they don't deserve it. The main thought that I want you to take away from this sermon today is this. When Christians suffer in this life, it is only because God is using our suffering to make us more like the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. When Christians suffer in this life, it is only because God is using our suffering to make us more like the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. I don't have... Multiple points today. I've just got one big point. We'll just go with that. Point one and point only is uh, is what you're about to hear. I don't even have a heading for this. I wasn't doing that back in those days of points and all of those things, and I didn't have time to try to incorporate them into this sermon. But looking at chapter 20 for a moment, it's clear that Zophar's anger has been roused, and he's irate as he's speaking to Job. If you read that chapter, take some time to read it this afternoon. Read through it, and you'll pick up that Zophar is angry. He doesn't like what he's just heard Job say in chapter 19 and Job's response to Bildad, who spoke in chapter 18. And he's mad. He says in verse 2, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. He's livid. He's responding in haste, he says there in verse 2. And his speech pours forth from his lips. A cascade of words flow out of his mouth. He says in verse 3 that Job's words, his censure, have insulted him. That is, Zophar. Zophar is insulted by Job's words in chapter 19. And he asks Job in verses 4 and following, If he does not know the age's old truth, that the exulting of the wicked is short, and that even though his height reached that of a mountain, the wicked will perish forever. Doesn't Job know this? Now at this, this point in chapter 20, Zophar is speaking of the ultimate end of the wicked. And we would agree, those who persist in their unbelief, those who refuse to trust in Jesus Christ, those who will not bend their knee and bow down before Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they will suffer God's wrath for eternity. None of us would disagree with Zophar so far in what he's saying in chapter 20. That is the wicked person's ultimate end. But though Zophar begins at the end, he doesn't stay there. Skipping down in chapter 20 to verses 12 and following, Zophar begins to speak of the present suffering of the wicked man. So now he's talking about right now the wicked man is suffering. He says, though evil is sweet in his mouth, though though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of the cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. And so Zophar is saying that when a person gives expression through his, to his wickedness through his actions, that is when a person commits a sin, God will smite that person with the wrath that we thought was reserved for those in hell. Zophar is saying the wicked will suffer hell on earth when they sin. He's saying the wicked suffer. Their suffering is punishment for their wicked deeds. And what Zophar is implying in his speech in chapter 20 is that those who suffer in this life most assuredly are wicked. Now there, there is a form of this that has entered into the church. Not necessarily this church, but you've probably heard this. You might have even believed it at one point. I think sometimes we actually do sort of secretly believe it when things don't go right in our life. When things go south for a time, when we start to suffer, when, when we've known nothing but favor at our, wor- our work, at our jobs, and then all of a sudden things just turn in a very dark direction, and we can't seem to work things out. And we think, God must hate me. I must be being punished for something. I thought he was my father, but I don't know. And so we fall into that trap. In the prosperity gospel portion of Christianity... They teach that if you are not materially prosperous, it is because you have done something wrong. And you don't deserve to receive material prosperity as a gift from the Lord. And those who do have material prosperity, well, they've been blessed by the Lord because they've done what is right. This is the age old, unbiblical, unchristian notion that if something bad has happened to you, you must have done something to deserve it. And it is indisputable that bad has happened to Job. He can't deny it. And it's obvious to his friends. Well, into this finely oiled theological machine the three friends have constructed, Job throws the most minor of wrenches. Rather than suffer in this life, he says, the wicked actually prosper. In reality, Job tells Zophar in chapter 21, the wicked do pretty well in this life. After introducing what he's about to say to Zophar in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 21, Job lays in in verse 7. He says, why do the wicked re- live and reach old age and grow mighty in power? If you, what you say is true... About the wicked suffering now. If the wicked suffering is retribution for their sins in this life. In, in the immediate context of how they've sinned against the Lord. If what you, say, what you said is true. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Now, he could have stopped right there. Because even though his friends were incapable of hearing what he was saying, with that question, Job had just proven that Zophar's statements about the wicked and their inevitable suffering in this life were False. Job could have stopped right there, there, but Job is not known for his brevity, is he? His speeches clearly prove this, so he doesn't stop there. But the logic of his argument will stay the same for the rest of the chapter. He's going to essentially argue the same thing until the end of chapter 21. And this logic is incontrovertible. Now, it may seem like this is just a tit-for-tat kind of argument, with Zophar asserting that he is right and Job saying, no, you're not. But there's more than that going on here. Job, it must be said, is treading a fine line. He is bordering in this chapter on accusing God of neglecting to prevent the wicked from prospering. He says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 21, their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. It's almost like Job is accusing God of doing nothing in the face of their evil, of being complacent, In relation to their wickedness. Verses 11 and following say, They send out their little boys like a flock, and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. His version, Job's version of the life and death of wicked people is quite different than Zophar's and entirely believable to anyone in our day. When you read what Zophar says and you read what Job says in chapter 21 in response to Zophar, which whose words ring true to you as you look around and see what's going on. Look at Hollywood. Look at Silicon Valley. Look at the big wigs and hot shots in New York on Wall Street. Not all of them are evil. I don't mean to say that. But look at what's going on. Are they suffering? Or are they prospering? And in this time, in our nation and around the world, when all of these, uh, these restrictions have been imposed upon us as a country, as a, as a society, how many people... Get to act as, as if those rules don't apply to them. How many people are suffering right now? And how many people are prospering and doing quite well? well that's not a surefire way to, to determine who is wicked and who isn't. It would not be good for you to just look around and say, oh, well, so and so is quite wealthy. They must be a very wicked person. We don't want to take what Job is saying to that kind of conclusion. But the, the wicked, that the wicked prosper is a self-evident truth. We see it every day, and Job did too. And Job continues on, saying that the wicked essentially thumb their noses at God. Verses 14 and 15 say this, They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Wicked people do wicked things and despite that they prosper and they point to their prosperity as proof that God isn't going to touch them. According to the three friends standards, the wicked people that Job is referring to should be counted as righteous. According to the retribution theology that Job's three friends have subscribed to and that are teaching and promulgating here with Job, the drug lords in Central America would be counted as righteous because they most certainly prosper in this life. But as Job says later in the chapter, in verses 23 and 24, that the wicked dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. But another, he says in verse 24, referring to the innocent, dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. Both lie down in the dust and the worms cover them. But even in death, as Job argues in verses 27 to 33, the wicked are treated well. At their funerals. They're well attended. Their tombs have guards to watch over them. And mankind wants to emulate the wicked so that in death they will be honored in the same way. Job is saying even when the person goes down to Sheol, the people still remember them, the wicked, and revere them. Psalm 93 and Psalm 92, among others, echo Job's words in our chapter. Asaph in Psalm 93 says that he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He observed that they are not not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. In Psalm 92, verses 5 to 7, we read, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot follow. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Job is arguing, and the psalmists as well, that it is a fact that the wicked do prosper in this life. They are often, not always, but often well-to-do. And so, Job implies, the prosperity in this life is not a sign of righteousness. It is not a sign of being blessed by God. And so if that is true, if what Job is arguing is true, that prosperity is not necessarily a sign of righteousness... It may be, but it doesn't have to be. If that is true, then, and this is what is implied, the converse is also true that calamity is not a sign that God is punishing a person who is suffering calamity. The wicked so often do not get what they deserve in this life. Justice is deferred, it's delayed. And many godly people, followers of Jesus, suffer all kinds of calamity and sorrow in this life. And so if prosperity, if the prosperity of the wicked is not an infallible sign of blessing, then the suffering of the righteous cannot be a sign of punishment. Not infallibly. It is true that we come under God's fatherly displeasure, even as His children when we disobey Him. He does correct us. But we do not, we will not come under his judgment. We will not suffer his damnation, his wrath, his curse. That is what Job is arguing here. And by doing so, Job is still maintaining his innocence to these three comforters turned accusers. Now we might decide that this just isn't right. We might start like to demanding that God slay the wicked and the evildoer. This idea that God is delaying His judgment, He's deferring that until a later point. But consider this, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. You want immediate judgment and satisfaction for the wrongs that you have seen the wicked do in this life. But think about this. Paul writes there, "...or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived." Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul lists all types of people according to their sin, but it is at the end of all things that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They don't receive their punishment for sins in this life. Not necessarily, they may, but not necessarily They will receive their punishment for their sins in this life in the life to come. And that's actually a good thing, brothers and sisters. Believe it or not. It's a good thing. And it's merciful of God not to punish everyone who does wicked in this life. Why? Why is it a good thing? Because of what Paul says in the very next verse. And such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's a good thing that God does not smite us the moment that we commit our very first sin in our lives. Now think about this, the Bible teaches us that all of our actual transgressions, all of the the sins that we commit on a daily basis, those flow out of our sinful nature. So what if, just a thought exercise here, what if in the first moment of our lives that our sinful nature began to show itself by causing sinful actions, whatever that that might be? Uh, An infant who realizes that he can deceive his mother by sounding sick or hungry and get her to come to him when all he wants really is some attention. What if, because of that deception, God immediately brought the hammer down? And poured out his wrath on that baby. What if he did this and uh, delivered those who committed this kind of sin immediately to hell? No one would live past infancy. Before a person comes to have faith in Jesus Christ, he or she is in the class of the people known as the wicked. And such were some of you. If, as Job's three friends assert, God rains down punishment in this life for our sins without offering any hope for redemption, then none of us, no one anywhere would be saved. Not a one. But God has showed His forbearance. He showed that He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In this, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. It wasn't when, at that moment when we became righteous... That Christ said, okay, now I'll die for you because you're a pretty good person. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Job doesn't fully understand what's going on in his life. He doesn't know why God is allowing all of these terrible things to happen to him. He does wonder if God is punishing him and why. But his hope rests in his conviction that just as the wicked can prosper, so the righteous can suffer. And neither is a reflection or a consequence of the moral state of the person. Don't go around judging those you see suffering and thinking they must be wicked. Don't go around judging those who are prospering and think they must be righteous. This is not an infallible guide. It's not even close to an infallible guide. The person who believes in Jesus Christ but who loses a child, is not being punished by God for some sin, past or present. The father of Jesus Christ who gets diagnosed with a ca- catastrophic disease is not suffering God's wrath for some past sin. Toil, hardship, sleepless nights, going hungry and thirsty, being exposed to the cold, these aren't punishments from God upon his children. Paul suffered every single one of these things during his missionary journeys, and far worse... And are we going to say that the Apostle Paul was unrighteous and justly suffering because of his wickedness? Disease, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, anxieties, mental duress. These are not different types of punishment that God is visiting upon you. They aren't. If you believe in Jesus Christ... then these hardships are the tools that Jesus Christ, the carpenter, is using to shape you into the person that He wants you to be. We can say unequivocally that Job's friends had it all wrong. Their understanding of the world was turned upside down from what the reality was. But we often think the same way, brothers and sisters, and we need to repent of this thinking because we are are discrediting the Lord. We're selling him short. We do think the same way. Sometimes it, we get caught up in this idea that if I'm just sailing along and doing well in my life, I must have done something good and God is rewarding me for it. And conversely, if I'm suffering through some kind of hardship or other, it's because I've done something bad and God is punishing me. None of us is, is immune to this way of thinking. It is in the air that we breathe. It's what the culture believes And it's a part of our sinful nature that tells us again and again, despite the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ, that we must earn God's favor. That we must earn His love. And it's not true. The opposite is actually true. Wicked people often do prosper in this life, and innocent people, righteous people, often suffer. If it's not possible for the righteous person to suffer as Job's three friends assert, as they believe, as they were trying to teach him, then it would be impossible for the only truly righteous person, Jesus Christ, to have suffered in your place and my place. Think about that. If the righteous don't suffer, only the wicked suffer, then Jesus Christ could not have suffered in your and my place. In the three friends theology, it would have been impossible for Jesus to be righteous. According to their system of belief, Jesus would have been an abject failure. And there are many people in this world who regard Jesus as such. They don't believe in the resurrection. They think he just went to the grave and there he remained, if they even believe that he existed at all. Job closes his speech by asking in verse 34 how these three people, these three friends, will comfort him with empty nothings. And then he says that all their answers are falsehood. It's a pretty bleak ending to this chapter. But we'll close with this. Jesus Christ suffered throughout his life and in his death so that we would not have to suffer God's wrath for our sins. When we suffer in this life, it is only because God is using our suffering to make us more like the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Your father wants you to be like his son because you are his son and his daughter. He's making you like Jesus. He's pressing you into that mold and sometimes it hurts but it is for your good as well as for the glory of God most high brothers and sisters that is good news amen let us pray our gracious God we thank you Though these words from chapter 21 of the book of Job, these words that Job himself spoke to his friends, though they're hard to hear, and though we recognize that Job was in a very dark place in his life, he was suffering tremendously and being accused of heinous and egregious sin by these friends who had come to comfort him, we thank you for all that what he said implies, that we Even we who have been counted as righteous in your sight, who have had the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us, even we can suffer in this life. We pray, dear Lord, that you would teach us that our suffering is not a sign of your wrath, of your displeasure, of your hatred, of your anger toward us. We pray that you teach us that our suffering is not a sign, that you have rejected us. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have made an oath. You've made a vow that you will never leave nor forsake your children. And we pray that in those dark moments when we begin to doubt, that you would remind us of that truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.